Okay, so we're back to Cracks in Postmodernity, and we have some special guests from the Contra Gentilis podcast. Did I say it right? I like how you said it like Jeremy likes it said. Yes. Contra, I say Contra. Yeah, it's, it's Contra Gentilis. <laughs> it's like what ecclesiastical Latin. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most Anglos just say Contra Gentilis. But, but I think it's contra gentilis is probably a little bit more accurate. So trigger warning, um, we're going to be saying some very mean things about Anglos. So <laughs> cover your ears if you're sensitive. Um, so Jeremy and Grant are here. Tell us about yourselves. Tell us some background. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? No, Jeremy, no. Okay. So, um, so yeah, me, I'm just... Uh, I guess I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Alaska um, here, and uh, my studies kind of uh, in different universities. I'm, not, I'm really bad about talking about myself, but okay. So yeah, I, I studied at undergrad out in Pennsylvania, Misericordia University, and then I went to Caillou Leuven in Belgium uh, to do my two masters and my uh, doctoral uh, coursework and everything. And um, yeah, and so I came back to Alaska about 2017, I think it was, yeah, 2017. And um, yeah, I started teaching here and then, uh, you know, on a business or whatever, but, but more, more pertinent, I guess, to, to the discussion today. Um, a lot of my research uh, was for epistemology, philosophy of mind, as well as uh, metaphysics and metaethics. Mm-hmm. And when we talk a lot about our podcast I, um, is related towards, um, uh, uh, I guess, I, I do want to say broad, but I, but, but more deeper into uh, social norms uh, as well. I guess some of the um, basic topics that most podcasters talk about, you know, what's happened politically, but, but we normally get into it in a philosophical sense. And we try to, I think both, and I, Grant and I pretty much agree metaphysically with Thomistic philosophy and more of pre-Trentian um, Catholic worldview. And so there, there's a lot of people out there that, uh, that I think call themselves trads, but normally trads simply refer to post-Trentian um, 1800s, 1900s um, Catholics, which is a very small portion of its history. And, 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 and so uh, since we normally hearken back to about the 1100s, 1200s, um, 1300s, you know, I, I would say we try to at least be more accurate in how the church um, functioned for the majority of its existence, as opposed to just simply the last 200 years um, that I think a lot of people kind of focus on. So we're, we're not, we're not trad Catholics at all. I'm not Catholic, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am Grant and I um, am a like Protestant defector, I think is the thing. Like I haven't, I haven't converted or anything, but I've, I've, I, like I said before we started recording, I'm like a reformed Anglo. I'm like your reformed Anglo co-host and sidekick that like <laughs> helps you contrast the Protestant worldview again, or the contemporary Protestant worldview, and by extension, kind of contemporary Catholic worldview against what we're trying to say about the world and the structure of reality. Um, I do not have an extensive, any extensive, um, or really any history at all academically with philosophy. Anything I know, I just like learned on my own or from Jeremy from whatever reading. So I'm kind of the, the kind of the the flip side of what like I'm I intuitively reached the same conclusions. I don't know. So I, don't, I really there's I don't have as much to say, and I think you summarized the the ethos of the show pretty well. Okay. So I don't yeah. can move into the conversation if we want, but. So some things we agree on is that sin is good and should not be abolished. Uh, So, no, I think I'm going to start with this. So Oscar Wilde once said that the Catholic Church is for saints and sinners alone. For for respectable people, the Anglican Church would do. why is it that in America, a very Anglo, very puritanical culture, like we obsess about sin and then we like make sin 
okay, this is the kind of like situation we're in in America. How does this, how did we end up with this? Why are we like this? Um, yeah, I, I think I have some ideas about that. I, I think one of the main ideas is that we don't, because we're so puritanical, I think the only thing that really changed was that which we find um, sinful as a, but, but I, I guess the, the basic mode and ethos remained the same. And so, for example, um, pure Puritanism takes sexual vices as being the worst of all vices. Yeah. So rather than having more of the traditionalist Thomistic view where you have the, the um, corporeal sins as being simply lesser goods, they view it as being the most evil thing that you can do. And I don't think the secularists disagree with that. I think when you think about you know, their, their obsession, like with the hashtag Me Too movement, the, the, the ideas that, um, that rape is the worst type of sin that one could commit, that, uh, that these type of people should be cast, you know, have their dicks cut off as, as well as uh, just uh, either die in prison and nobody feel bad for them. Um, we, we, we are still very puritanical and we, and we have our mode of, of judgment on what makes sex proper. And so I, I think one of, the, one of the things about puritanism is that they view corporeal acts as being inherently evil that needs to be sanctified by some sort of behavior. Uh, as opposed to the more traditional Catholic view, the pre-Trentian Catholic view is that sex is inherently good or and food is inherently good. These corporeal things are lesser goods that can be perverted by some actions. And so one, in one instance, it begins with a notion that it is good and that you could deviate while the other one begins with a notion that it is bad that needs something to sanctify it. And so, um, and so with, a, with a secularist, it's, it's consent. Consent is what sanctifies their sexual behavior, is that if there is no consent, it remains gross, it remains bad, it remains evil, and it remains something that we ought not to do. And then you need the consent to sanctify. And then once that is, um, and then any kind of behavior then goes, along, as long as consent is a part of it. And, um, and, and I think that is normally their mode of being. So uh, in general, I don't think... I don't think the Puritanism really left. It's just that we, with removing God, um, the sexual activities changed as to what is acceptable, but not in terms of the value of the sexual behavior. I think that still remains so potent in, in, our, in our society that even a pedophile that goes to jail will most likely get killed by other prisoners. Because even if there is a mass murderer, if he has never diddled a child, he still views himself more justified to kill the child diddler than, than, than his own sins of like killing five people or walking to a room and shooting everybody in the head, just as long as they all were adults and there was no sex involved. We somehow make it as if it is not that bad. And so I still think it exists within our ethos. I don't know, how about you, Grant? Um, so we had double our audio on the Zoom call. Um, yeah, this is something we discuss on the show quite a lot especially in the earlier catalog is how disordered the American view of sex is. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the homosexuality thing or whatever. Or I mean, that doesn't that's exist. A good segue. Oh yeah. The gay, yeah so you can't really can't, say anything about it. Yeah. You can't gay someone <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't exist. No, I, J Jeremy, Jeremy kind of said everything I would say. So I don't, I agree with everything you said. I don't know if there's that much more to say about it. But, um, yeah. I'm looking at the docket. Um, so I was going to say the Charles Taylor thing. So he's like, I think it's the beginning of Secular Age when he talks about these like moments or these spaces of anti-structure. So like, I think we said carnival or mm -hmm. like Mardi Gras brothels, but also like, kind of sanctified anti-structure spaces like monasteries or whatever like spaces where it's not like kind of normal natural everyday life um where it's possible for people to kind of deviate from this norm to either do like kind of perverse messed up things or like i don't know to have like a mix mystical ecstasy or whatever because puritanism or like the puritan worldview collapses these spaces of anti-structure it's just like pure structure 
there's no space for deviation for experimentation. So then like inevitably we have to normalize all these things which are deviant or unnatural. It's like in, in a puritanical, like ideological framework culturally, it seems like there is a, a great desire to reject the idea that people are innately sinful that like if we just don't talk about it and we don't display it in any way and we don't recognize it that somehow that's the the way to manifest the perfection of man on earth or something um and like what you said like um brothels carnival mardi gras etc it's like i don't think they're not celebrations of sin they're like they're like scheduled recognitions of it they're like a I don't know. It's like, it's an occasion to because I, I don't want to say celebrate because they're not celebrations. It's to let it out. Yes, it's and because I think Puritans would say, "Oh, that's a celebration of evil." You know, yes. that's that's not really what it. It's not a celebration. It's like a. It's like a. I don't know if because people as sinful beings and imperfect beings, they will succumb to their sinful nature at some point it's almost like a organized succumbing to sin in a way i don't know what you have to say about that jeremy but it's like we don't especially in the u.s we don't do that at all we don't publicly maybe like that's kind of what like originally like what drag was it was like a, a just a like a recognition of the object Mm-hmm. in a way aesthetically it was a it's the same kind of thing I, I, we have that now but they've kind of co-opted it ideologically into like lgbt politics and stuff so i don't mm-hmm. think it's the same anymore but yeah i, I think um it's I, I think that that's the biggest difference is that i think once you you don't even recognize and so like to go back to even even the way the services are with with with, with the distinctions between protestants and, and catholics like the the masses has always been said the mass is for the sinner uh, and even when you first go to mass you're basically telling everybody you're a piece of shit you know there, there, there's a moment in the beginning where you say you know forgive me for things i have done and what i failed to do um through my fault through my fault through my most grievous fault I asked the Blessed Mary Virgin, and anybody that goes to two mass knows that. And so you're you're coming there as a lowly person and be like, I throughout the week have done horrendous things. I am not properly unified with, with Christ, and I need the sanctifying grace in order to overcome whatever sin has ailed me through this week. And um, and so that's that's really the point of the mass. That if we all were perfect, there will be no reason for mass. Uh, and and when you look at Protestant um, fellowship. It's the exact opposite is that when you go to the fellowship or you go to worship, whatever they call it, um, it's because you're a good person. And so, you know, these people are good because they're going to church, you know, they're wearing their Sunday best or doing whatever. And they're, um, and, and, and so then there, you, there's families that you kind of want to entertain with and be like, I want my kids to be around you because you're, um, you're a good family, you're a good church going family and everything. And so I, I think the whole mentality is is different. It's like in one instance, we have a, a liturgy for the sinners. And in the other instance, you have um, worship for all the saints in a way. And that's an interesting, so that, that reminds me of an interesting um, feature of Catholic converts from like the more puritanical sects mm-hmm. of Protestant Christianity in the U.S. is they convert to a system of theology that recognizes the sinful nature of man and doesn't condemn man for it in the same way yeah um and then they wonder why on earth catholics aren't constantly obsessed with doing the right thing all the time they're like wait but you're catholic and if you're catholic why are you doing that thing why are you yeah like what you can't just go to confession then it's fine it's like that's not it's they they misunderstand that part and it's very hard to Mm-hmm. reorder that the yeah. idea of sin in the mind of someone who grew up in a protestant church yeah. so it's it's very 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 deeply ingrained yes. in the culture uh, i also do think what ends up happening inevitably is that the, is that the protestant still ends up doing these sins but it's closeted 
Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, and that's one, one, one thing I really noticed. And so I was even like grooming with some people when I was in college and everything, you know, different, different variety, even like Catholics in, in the nation can tend to be very Protestant. And so, you know, you, you meet these people. And I remember um, there's like this space in between the fridge and the counter where he would keep alcohol. And, um, and in there, he would keep it so the kids doesn't see it and everything. After he puts the kids to sleep there, you know, he would crawl into that little space, like take a few chugs of alcohol and then comes back out and then just, you know, will fall asleep or whatever. Because, you know, normally when you're older, like three shots of whiskey is probably going to make you buzzed. And, um, and, and so it's, it's, this is the kind of, I guess, behavior that normally ends up happening even even like the idea of the closeted gay person i think is, a, is very protestant it's this idea that yeah. that these people are are still with this vice but it's better that nobody knows about it as opposed to uh, what i would say like pre-trentian because you know, when you see a lot of the um arguments from from luther and, and many of the lutherans after him or the calvinists and, and every protestant after it was how you know it wasn't just about the selling of indulgences that, that, that he disliked. He also disliked that the priests at times would be caught in brothels and then they would have to go to confession and then say mass on Monday. And so it was like, he, he viewed it as hypocritical. He was like, you know, why are these people doing these things? And it wasn't as if the churches was condoning it. It was, it was like, they weren't saying that it was a good thing, but they were saying that it was an, an inevitable thing that human beings will sin. And, um, and we talked about this yesterday in the podcast um, as well. It's like, you know, even the sentiment of, of the other individuals changes in that way. Because someone like me, who, who I would say is much more in line with, um, with the pre-Trentian Catholics, is that I, I, re- I don't want to say rejoice, but I am more calm knowing the sins of somebody else. Is that if there is a main Catholic figure... Or Christian figure, or whatever you want, you want, you want to say. But when there's a main figure in which one is a is a good theologian, or, or, or and you recognize them as being someone of great mind, I am more comforted to know what he struggles with yeah. because if he doesn't and he pretends to be perfect and he has like a perfect family and you have all these pictures that he put everywhere, what is, what is he hiding? yeah. My my question is always, what is he hiding? Because yeah. you know the. <laughs> A lot of, you know, I think it was um, C.S. Lewis that said the, his, his, when, when inductively, when he got to a lot of his basic arguments said, well, now you have to come to the question of, of the person of Christ, either Christ is a, a liar, a lunatic or a Lord. And so I think inductively, I could only conclude he is who he claims to be. And if that is the case, there is nobody in the world that would ever be that way. And if I were to meet somebody else to be that way, and then there's nothing special about Christ. And if there's nothing special about Christ, then there's no reason for me to be Christian. I could be some kind of um, thinker that, that a believer in God. I could be more of a pagan, paganist. Or, you know, I, I could just believe in the Aristotelian notion of the uh, uh, of being as as reality without the without the Jesus figure. Um, but but that's what I find unique. And so I think many when you look at older saints, you see that structure, right? It, w- it was as if their, their sins were out there, right? Augustine had a bastard son, you know? Um, he had that famous prayer, um, make me chase, but not just yet. And, and, it's, and I think all things were important. You have St. Mary of Egypt, who was pretty much a whore um, and, and, and enjoyed polluting the Christians' minds who were going to, um, going to see a piece of the cross. And she would fuck them and then they would pay her way. I mean, you, you see a lot of these things. I mean. Saint Paul was a murderer. Right? <laughs> he, he, when, when, I don't know what what Protestants think when they say he persecuted Christians. That doesn't mean he was like you nasty boy. No, it, it, when when you when you were persecuting Christians, you mean that you killed them. And so you have this murderer out there who becomes one of the greater saints in, in the church. You have the first saint that we know of, who is the thief. Um, next to Christ, where he says, "Tonight you will be with me in paradise." We don't know his crimes. We don't know whether, as as uh, as a as a thief or a robber, he actually killed. Two, we don't know any of that. But but we do know that he was a sinner. And, and so all of the sins with each one of these, the apostles, you know, the denial of, of Christ with Peter, the the um, uh, you know Judas, the the betrayal of Judas, with all of them, they all were sinners, and they all were depraved humans. And that brings me comfort because then I know my belief in Christ has to be correct. 
And I think the Protestant worldview is the exact opposite. It shakes their ground. If Billy Graham came out and he had like four bastard kids, Ravi oh, like Ravi Zacharias, like I actually liked him afterwards. It's like, oh, there he goes, man. I like this guy. Uh, and so now I'm comforted by him. He, he was, I mean, he wasn't the best theologian, but for Protestants, I think he was very convincing. And he was somebody that, um, that at least railed against the uh, new atheists of the time and everything that I think was a good. And, and knowing his sin was, was proper. And so sin by the church is always recognized as a reality. It isn't condoned, but it's just recognized. And it's, it's basically telling you, you're a piece of shit, you will sin. Regardless of what you do, you will sin. Any goodness that comes from you does not come directly from you, but only through the grace of Christ. And so you need to pray, you need to go to mass, you need to receive communion, you need to go to confession. We have all these facilities for, I mean, not facilities, but, but I guess sacraments mm -hmm. for you so that you can um, work on the overcoming of the sin, but it's never going to be you. And, and understanding that it's never going to be you really takes away that intensity that I think Puritans have, because it's like, this is why the Puritans have to hide it, because it's like, no, 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 I am evil because I like whiskey. So that's what happens that when we take away this space for anti-structure, then it's just like either we have to hide it and do it like on the down low, or we have to like normalize it and then have like a month dedicated to it and a parade because it's totally normal. But I think it's like, this is part of the reason why there's such an obsession with the gender stuff because it used to be that there was a space, there were spaces for you to play around with gender. So like at carnival, like you could cross dress and no one's gonna like freak out <laughs> or you could just be a deviant and like go do your dirty things, you know, yes. and then eventually you go to confession. But also like in the monasteries, you had like monks like John of the Cross or rather friars who are writing these mystical love poems to Christ as a woman. So it's like, you know that you're a man and you know that you're not going to determine your gender, but like, you know that there's a little bit of space to play around. Now, because there's no space, it's like, uh, we have to abolish gender and I am not how I was born. Like now I, you know, so it's not totally their fault. I guess in a, purit in a puritanical world, <clears throat> worldview, any, it's either, if it's sinful, you can never do it. But if you have never. a natural propensity as a, as a human to do something, then you have to normalize it because if you don't normalize it, then you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you mean, you have to make it public in a way that's yeah. really annoying. Yeah, like yeah. you can't just like have your weird thing that you do on the side that only like the priests know about and your good friends or whatever. Like you have to, you have to make like a spectacle of yourself and your degeneracy which I think is like really psychologically damaging to people that like you have to put your weird things your weird work. baggage <laughs> yes it's, it's very it's so much work to like blast your baggage out your windows 24 7 because if you don't then you can't be human in a way like I don't <laughs> yeah I, yeah I completely agree um I guess yeah. the psychological damage is like very obvious. In yeah, and, and, and so I think when the left talks about the psychological damage, I'm sorry, it's throwing me off with you. Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and so like, I don't think they're wrong when, when they talk about how, you know, these people in, you know, the, the puritanical worldview is kind of damaging psychologically. I was like, yeah, I am, I'm completely in agreement with that, but I am not in agreement with the solution. It isn't therefore we should normalize it. It's it's therefore we should recognize it and we should acknowledge that that reality um, and just continue to live life the best way that we all can considering each one of our faults. You know, there's some people that have the propensity just to lie all the damn time. And, and you know, Aquinas would agree with me that that's a greater evil than the one who who just likes to fuck all the time because at least you want them to partake in the good and lying, you're always partaking in, in, in absolute evil. But then you, you have to work with that and you have to live with that sphere and, and so lived experience in this way is always different than what we know the ultimate good to be. And, and the more that we reject things, you know, the more that we, we begin to reject, because this even happens, like, I think, with divorce. It's like now what we see with, 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 the, with the nation is that we don't, we don't have ideas of extended families. We don't have ideas of people um, remaining uh, together, at least to, to, to have our children. It's, it's that we have to now separate everything 
and completely live, I think, a, a more degenerate lifestyle where kids suffer more than in the than in the past where they simply had houses of three. You know, when when they had like menage a trois, that's simply what it meant. It, it meant that there were houses of three, and so sometimes it was that he had a mistress or he had two other mistresses or whatever, and then he. But, but they would still live together and they still would take care of the children and still would raise them. But now it's the idea that no, it, that is more evil than, than divorce. And so then they think it's okay. We, we just have to separate, we have to divorce, which I think then it creates more psychological damages to the kids as well as to the, to the people involved. Because things aren't that simple. Things aren't that black and white. It's not as if, um, you know, you just, you love somebody and then you fall out of love with them. Things get complex and we do actions that can lead to consequences. And, and then you have to deal with that consequences, consequences after you live with it. And we, we should just be able to recognize that rather than um, demonize it and, and then and, and now moving on. Because this is also an issue that we have in Africa. So Africa has one of the highest converts to Catholicism, but many of those regions were, were, are Islamic. And so there's many Africans that have like two or three wives and then they convert to Catholicism. So the church is kind of struggling like, well, what do you do now? Are, are you just gonna abandon one of the families? You know, what if, what if it was one of them you have four kids? You, do you just say like, no, now you're no longer, you're not no longer married. So now you have to leave them be. It's like, that's not really a proper solution. Obviously you're still the father and you still have, you still have done something um, to, to the female that you need to, um, that you need to support and whatnot. But, but with this puritanical worldview, I think we begin to struggle with instances like that because we don't leave room and space for degeneracy, but degeneracy will always exist. And, and it's, it's something that I think it's important that we, we have to continuously, uh, again, not condone, but always accept and be like, with these cases, we have to just accept this as a reality. And if you don't, I think then you live in a fantasy world where it's just, um, it's actually more psychologically damaging for, for the one who is sinning as well as for the people around him um, with whom they sin. So then I want to, let's go into the whole, like, gay identity thing, because it's so particular to, like, puritanical, waspy kind of cultures. Because, like, I'm thinking about, I know a lot of people, specific, specifically from Italy, who will not call themselves gay unless they actually sodomize people. Whereas people who just, like, tend to have stronger feelings for their guy friends who may have fantasized about a guy like are not very quick to identify um and then there are like there are guys i know who when they were younger like had moments of like homoerotic desire and played around but like as they mature they're like yeah you know that's when i was a kid whereas for us in america it's like as soon as a kid has an inkling that you know maybe my friend's kind of cute maybe i want to touch him it's like uh you're gay. It's time for you to accept <laughs> the truth. Don't hide it anymore. Yeah. Uh, don't live in denial. Like that's what I. That's what I mean. It's like it's it's a. I obviously like homoerotic <laughs> desire is something that has been present for all of human history. That's it's an inc- uh, ranging from just a strong desire for the masculine to strong sexual urges uh, ordered towards men or what other men or whatever um it's obviously been that's part of just how humans operate but there's been an attempt in it's just like what i said earlier in a puritanical ideological framework in like culture you have to normalize whatever if if you can't outright condemn it you have to normalize it because there can't be just any recognition of natural sin so this this identity of the homosexual has been invented to try to normalize a natural deviant tendency in people so that we can talk about it publicly (laughs) um so what we're that's one of our shticks on our show contragentilis is that we spent a lot of time or at least in the past have spent episode upon episode talking about the quote unquote the homosexual trademark um, identity that's been concocted in the last couple hundred years to denote someone who has an inclination towards the masculine so strong that it becomes sexual, um, I think is the best way to say it. Um, yeah, I think yeah. Jeremy would agree. Um, but it's, it's not a rational thing to say. It's not rational to use language to 
refer to something potential as if it is realized, like like realized potency, like actualized. It's not an actual. Like if you just if you're a man who desires some kind of sexual contact with another man or whatever romantic engagement that doesn't mean that you've actualized any potency you just desire a thing and there's no real other there's no real word that we use in the same way in english like it's a very strange unique irrational use of language that i think jeremy and i both find very entertaining to say the least but i think also just very damaging yes because that's not how you you can't you can't you can you can refer to things potentially mm-hmm. um you meet your thing sorry um you can refer to the potential as potential it's proper to understand that potential is it's not real per se metaphysically speaking but it is something it exists at least or like there, there is potential well i mean potential is so it, it doesn't exist but it is which is you well, know. at least it exists in certain properties that are actualized if, if that makes sense yeah, yes yeah. but um when you start to refer to the potential as if it's real then it completely or it can eventually totally disorder one's understanding of the structure of reality because you're not you're not speaking of things that are actual. You're only speaking of potential. And as soon as the second you ascribe reality to a potential, you can do it to any of them. And then the structure of reality, there isn't a structure to reality anymore because every, any potential is real. Yes. But then the flip side of like normalizing everything is that like, if I have if I sense that there's some inclination, it's either like, this is me, I am so proud, I am amazing, or I'm going to hell, I'm evil, but I didn't even do anything because the identity, identity is based on this potentiality. And, not, and, actually- and I think that's something that Puritans don't understand. And this is, I, I, I think the, the thing I was talking about earlier, the reason that it's so hard for deeply felt Protestants to at least convert to Catholicism, if not understand the theological tenets fully, is that sin requires act. Um, and if you haven't committed an act, you really haven't sinned because sin refers to doing a thing, not the potential of a thing. Again, and it's if, if, if potential can be sinful, like we're fucked. <laughs> There's, there's really, there's really, if all potential can is sinful, we should all just burn in a giant pile. Like what, like what, like that's it. There's no winning now. Like, yeah, because because we could potentially do anything. I, mean, <laughs> I could be a serial killer. I, I, we all have the potential to be a serial killer, right? We we all have the desire for dominance of some sort, and so a lot of times the thrill of you know slitting a person's throat or choking them out, looking in their eyes, is really for that for that sense of the actualization of our powers because we are we are power we have power only contingent to that of, of God, and so um, we, we we tend to want to actualize. So yeah, we we all have that potential, and to and to characterize that for one's identity, I just I, I find completely and utterly absurd because we just really don't do that with anything else. Uh, but only with sexual vice. So we're trying to do that with pedophilia now. And so this is why like with the TED Talks, we're trying to say that pedophilia is just a state in which somebody is born into. And so you can't really see uh, um, anything with that, you know, and so we kind of have to normalize pedophilia. And so it's, um, it's weird. It's, it's weird because I, I think, what, like what you were saying, since potentiality has no structure of being per se, um, since only when something exists potentially, it only exists potentially because that which is actual can be something else. And so it exists inherent in the nature of what is actual. And so like, you know, a dry bundle of sticks can be potentially engulfed in flames because it has properties that can be that. But until it is engulfed in flames, it cannot, you cannot say that that is burning, uh, that that is a burning wood pile. You just, it doesn't exist that way. It only, it only has properties in there. And so the only way that it has the potential properties if there's actual properties in the thing that is being actualized at the moment. And so um, the, the, I, I think that that's a very important metaphysical 
distinction that, that that's pretty much lost in the contemporary world. I think many people don't really think of potentiality and actuality in, in that way, besides people who are really like hardcore Thomist or Aristotelian um, thinkers. But, but in general, they, they just don't. They think that if there is a potential that exists in the person, um, then they are that thing. And, and I think it's just getting more and more chaotic because, um, because there, is no, there is no limiting principle of when to stop that. I mean, if there's going to be a point, there already is at least the point of if you're potentially you know, think or feel that to be a woman or whatever, and, and you got dick and balls that you in some way are actually a female. And, and so it's it, the, the confusion, I think, is already getting to an absurdity, but it's also going to get to a point where I think um, there'll be no way to not justify that somebody who has murderous thoughts should be go to jail because he fantasizes about killing people and he fantasizes about this and he really likes it. Uh, but yet he never does it. Uh, we, how is that any different than somebody who fantasizes about sodomizing another man or masturbates with porn or whatever? Um, but if they never actualize it, you can never really call that person a sodomite or, or a gay person. You, you, the actions, I guess, of watching porn is still an act, so you could, you could say that that, that, that in itself is sinful, but that's but it's still, they're still partaking in something. But you cannot say that you're partaking in the actual activity that would constitute somebody homosexual. And, and I think when, when, when you meet Italians that are that way, um, I think they're just coming from a deeply Catholic background, even yeah, if they yeah, themselves they, are, are they, secular. They get it. Yeah, I think they just get it because it doesn't make any sense, especially from the from the background, to to think that the potential is actual. But then let me ask this, because like I also see that in a lot of like especially Mediterranean cultures, it's super normal for guys to be affectionate. It's not like uh they're definitely sodomizing each other behind the scenes it's like no it's normal to be affectionate even like when i was i did a pilgrimage to the holy land and like these palestinian guys who are muslim are all over each other like arm in arm but of course you know sodomy is like punishable by death there but yeah. besides the point what i'm wondering though is how much is that kind of cultural norm of male intimacy that's not sexual influenced by the metaphysical views versus just like being a cultural thing like I, I do think a lot of it's just like warm climate cultures people are touchier and it's not necessarily sexual I don't know well it's I don't know if it has to do with climate per se but um I mean it, obviously at least um accidentally they there is a like strong male affection is very normal and natural for men because men love other men and that's part of the way that you that's part of, that's like a human cognitive process in but, developing relationships with people but it's, it is it is lacking in a lot of like anglo-saxon worlds yes yeah. totally um and of course by extension like south america is very affectionate also um, Central America, whatever, like the, the, the Latin speaking countries. Um, and what it, what's happened, and I don't know when the shift occurred. Um, and I don't know how early on it occurred. Um, I would imagine that after the, the development of the, the concept of the homosexual, quote unquote, was, um, that was what, like 1867, or it was, it was the, the second half of the 19th century. Um, I, I wonder if that was accelerated because when you operate with the understanding that the potential is real, when you see people partake of actions that could potentially um, signify come some kind of degeneracy to people who have like a disordered understanding of the way that people interact or whatever, um, you have to stop the thing because it's like, oh, that's gay, dude. Like what? Like, oh, you can't kiss men on the face. That's gay, dude. It's like, it's like, I'm not like sodomizing him. Like, what do you mean it's gay? But it's also <laughs> that you won't be happy until you do sodomize him because you're repressing what you really feel. It's like, oh, dude, you kissed that man on his cheek. You know, <laughs> or even like the lip right here. Uh, yeah, because like, like my, my French friend would like kiss me right here on the sides. And his name is Antoine. Um, yeah, it's the same thing. Like Francesco, when we go to the we go and go to the bar in Italy, like he literally has his arm around me, like like you know, in in this country, you only do uh, you only do that with. The with interesting thing is, um, even they even do that in like Chinese and Korean cultures, like Southeast Asian cultures. They do they're they they don't kiss each other because that's 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 just one manifestation of the same. That's one gesture. 
yes. but they're very touchy. They're very, yeah. they're all over you, especially yeah. if you start drinking, like everybody's just on top of each other. And it's like, no one has boners. It's not like, if you did, who cares? You know? No, but, no, but, the, the, but I, 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 I've always seen that, that distinction, especially my, my, both of my parents came from Peru. And so my dad used to tell me this story that he, the first time he realized um, that Americans were weird this way was he, he came to Peru and he had another Peruvian friend. And so they're walking, they're walking around San Francisco. <laughs> okay, so they're walking around San Francisco. And um, I don't know if you remember back in the late 70s and 80s, uh, guys, like guys who worked out used to wear those tummy shirts. And so like, like he had a six pack, my dad and everything. So he would wear like that, the tummy shirt. And he'd be walking with another proven guy with his hand around his waist. <laughs> And so he said everyone was was um basically saying that he's gay it was like i'm not gay and then they were like um then then his friend his uh, the proven guy who helped him like find places to live he he went to them and was like Shh, no I so it's like he's like don't do that because everybody thinks that you're you guys are fucking each other he was like what he was like, <laughs> he was like in lima this is the way we walked with our friends down the beach to hit on girls like literally like if you're with a bunch of guys you kind of like hold hold each other yeah and so it, it was actually a very masculine thing because if you have a lot of friends that you're intimate with it's because you're so manly that that you attract a lot of people and so then you could go hit on girls with it i wonder so you said that they would they would do that to like hit on women and stuff. Yeah. There is this weird, like a lot of women really enjoy like homoerotic um, fiction, works of fiction, whether it's film or mm. like uh, like anime is really popular, like gay anime is really popular with women. Yeah. So I wonder if like there's something to that, that like men being affectionate makes women desire men more. Mm. Or it makes them more attractive in their like affection. I don't know because it seems like I I do think there is some sense of an abundance of testosterone coming to yes. a girl that just makes them hot and horny. And so we so we so we kind of have yes yeah. And so we kind of have that when you like normally if you go to a bar alone, girls really aren't going to talk to you. But if you go to a bar with like a group of guys, mm -hmm. then they do want to talk to you. But um. But without, but without the affection, I think they, you lose a certain quality of, um, I guess, of masculinity. Because yeah. I, 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 I do think affection is a product of masculinity. Not, not the same way that females show affection, but the way men show affection, a woman, a woman wants a guy that's affectionate to them. Um, and it has to be ordered in the proper way. And so normally when they see the way you act with your guy friends is the way they think you will treat them. And so if you're always standoffish and you just watch a football game, like, you know, you always have to have like a body in between you guys, like no touch, no homo. Yeah, you put a pillow down. Like, it's really weird when you have to deal with anglos because it's like, you, there's nothing that you can do. Like, I cannot rest my leg on my guy, my anglo friend. Like when, when, I, when I was in um, Italy, we were watching some, I mean, in Belgium. So my Italian friend would come over and we were watch the European cup. And so he would lay on the sofa and his leg would be sprawled out. And then I would lay on the other side and my other leg would like lay over his. And we were just like watching a soccer match, right? And it was just whatever. It didn't really matter. And um, it, it, was, it was, especially the more intoxicated you got, then the more like resting your head on the shoulder. And people, were, I remember there was like, I think it was 2006 World Cup where Italy um, beat France. The, 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 during the penalty shootout, you could watch it online, like, the, the Italian guys will have their heads resting on them, kind of intense, um, the soccer players, and they're waiting for someone to score the goal. But there was always that intimacy, and they'll have their arm around them. I remember when I was watching it, my Anglo friends were talking, calling everybody fags. Like, Look at those fags. You know, why, why are they touching each other that way? It's like, why is that faggy? It's like you're, you're in this intense moment, and you're embracing the person that you have played this entire match with, that you've trained four years for it to get there and you're in the final and you're embracing this other person because you both are just like you have the, the, this this emotional attachment not only to each other but also to the game and then victory that how is that gay but yeah we, we basically turned everything into gay like i said you can't even sit next to somebody without a pillow in between because if you do then if somebody walks in they're like thanks but yeah it's <laughs> It's the same for straight people too that 
like it's become especially in like puritanical cultures that the only means for intimacy is sex and then everything else is like beneath that or like you know a less true version of love you know it's, it's almost like um like <clears throat> the only yeah you said the only way to express intimacy was sex and any other expression of intimacy or affection is ordered towards actually having sex with someone or it's just meaningless we don't like have genuine like friends it's like whatever it doesn't mean yes like that's the the thing about like you know ancient greek and roman culture and stuff is that there were like how many was there were there philosophically there were seven kinds of greek love there oh. seven there were like there were like ontologically separate ways of expressing affection and love to other people. There were three main categories, but I do think they broke it down to even further, but there was three main categories in both in um, Latin and in Greek. Because it seems like here, at least, and by and obviously other Northern European cultures and by extension everywhere else, because our influence is so great, at least to a degree, any, any affection you can show someone is a degree of sexual interest like there's no and i wonder if that has to do with some with like over analyzing the biological mandates of people and how they interact with each other or like everything is you know how if you don't if there is no if there is no um uh, higher order purpose of human existence everything's biological and like if you really if you really want i mean what the, the biological mandates of people is like sleep eating and sex and if you really don't think that there's any like greater intellect ordered towards something greater than the self or whatever those really are the only so if, if you show any affection it has to be ordered towards sex or like because it can't really be eating and it can't be sleep so. <laughs> and i think like going back to the whole metaphysical ontological question when people are talking about homoerotic desire now it's about like it's the love is love discourse like we're never talking about sodomy itself and like what the action actually symbolizes because if that were our point of departure then we would say like okay there is something that's out of order here like the feelings okay are one thing but we're always starting with like oh but you know how can we deny someone the right to love and it's like no one's denying you the right to love it's about sodomy which is <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think you put it more, much more elegant than I do. I mean, I'm going to say it's, it's about dick and asshole. And, that, and, and, that, and that's really what people really, I mean, if you, if you talk like to the super bro straight guy, that's what grosses them out, right? It, yeah, it's not natural. Yeah, it's, it's because, yeah, there's, that's where you should. Like if you can do the math, like it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't work. make sense. Yes. Yeah. And, and so that's really where the dispute is, but they try to deter the conversation to love. And, and I really do think that that is the puritanical fault though. I think it's because we, we've lost sight of man-to-man -man love. Uh, we, we just think that, it's, uh, that that shouldn't exist, that you should only love women and then loving another man is, is some, there's some defect there. It's also but, that the yeah. puritans don't have metaphysics because like when you look at you know, when you look at the biblical condemnation of sodomy it's like okay this is a spiritually charged like this action yes. means something on a spiritual level when we take that that kind of logic out of it, it's like uh, the bible said it's of an abomination therefore you're evil you're going to hell it's not like okay well why like what does this action actually symbolize yes yeah yeah, because whether you sodomize another man or sodomize a woman, it's still viewed out as degenerate in the church's eyes. It's like, yeah, you, you don't stick your dick up a woman's ass either. You, you're supposed to ejaculate in, in, in the vagina. And so that, that, that is still constituted as sodomy. And, and I think that that's something that uh, the Puritans don't really realize. They think that sodomy only exists with same-sex couples. Like, no, sodomy exists. The, the definition of, of what was sodomous from, for the entirety of, the, of that term being being used were disordered sexual acts. And the main disorder of a sexual act is the ejaculation of semen not in the vagina. So even if you pull out, it's sodomy. You sodomize somebody because you didn't ejaculate. If, if you ejaculate in the mouth, you sodomize each other, whether a man or a woman. Um, and so yeah, the sodomy really can exist with any kind of uh, either gender that, 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 that you're doing, but the, the, the disorder with um, 
with man to man is never the love. It's just uh, it's a sodomy. And so if people, and this is the example that I normally give to people. If the, you know, the, the church cannot object if two men who do not find women attractive at all, and they can never really bring themselves to to, to fuck uh, women and produce them. There's nothing at fault if they live together, right? And if they cook for each other and they were proper, probably properly loving one another. What if they uh, attempted to or, or decide to adopt orphan children and raise them in a church? None of those things are evil acts. Uh, the, the, the only time that it would become disordered is if they start sodomizing each other, but everything else within that scope, the church cannot logically object to it. It's like, no, there's, there, there's no disorder there because rather than them engaging in, in certain behaviors, they're actually engaging in proper behavior and they could fill each other spiritually. They could go to mass together. They could pray the rosary together. They could do all these things together and, and, and grow um, spiritually with one another as deep, intimate friends. And it was not in, until that, again, I said the, the second half of the 19th century that it, it was even a problem at all to anyone right. yes. because there was no concept of the homosexual there was no like homosexual behavior as a phrase didn't exist and it wasn't really conceived in the the, the popular conscience the way that we do it now yeah yeah that was the thing with um the guy who dorian gray was based on it was john john gray who eventually became a priest and then his like celibate lover um I think it was Mark Andre Rafalovich. So they were, because I think John Gray had an affair with Oscar Wilde and then like he converted and he's like, oh my God, I'm a filthy sodomite. I have to renounce this, became a priest. But then the relationship with Rafalovich was like, it was all about, you know, like we have this desire for each other and we're gonna like channel this towards Christ. So, and that's how like Rafalovich was like, he was one of the first people to write about not about like homoerotic desire as an orientation, but he's saying like, okay, there are some people who actually are born with this inclination, which can be either ordered towards sanctity, towards, you know, being a eunuch for the kingdom or towards vice, towards deviancy. But back to the other thing I wanted to say about Wilde. So he was convicted for, what was it? Crime of gross indecency or acts of gross indecency. And I think what I, I was saying before, what I find ironic is that like now it's like an act where it's celebrating, but the crime of gross indecency is today is smoking cigarettes, which Oscar Wilde thought was like metaphysically a very beautiful symbol. We've discussed that before. And I think I actually piqued Jeremy's interest last time in kind of articulating and understanding that to me smoking a cigarette or when I see other people smoking cigarettes and obviously it's not that big it's people aren't like cognizant of the fact that it's like a little ritual um, it's a little recognition of their mortality for me it is and I think for intelligent people I think that that's why it's so poetic and cool to like watch a really attractive person smoke a cigarette in a movie or something or like a beautiful woman or a beautiful man or whatever smoking a cigarette is like it's a little i don't want to say sacrament but it is like a sacrament. oh, sacramental it's sac it's a sacrament to the fact that you'll die and the fact that you're partaking in that reality of your nature actively for just a moment is i think that that's there's something centering about that yeah yeah, it isn't that, that I, I would disagree with that. My my biggest hang up is women smoking. Like I think smoking is a very masculine thing. And when I see a woman smoking, I think it looks gross. And that that's it for, for me, it's, it's it's more of a visceral reaction. It's like I don't want to see a woman smoking. If a guy smokes, I, I really don't care. I could be around him. I, like I smoke cigars with guys, it's fine. But I think it is a masculine thing. I think a woman smoking does not look proper. That's just do you, do you mean that on a cultural level or on like an actual metaphysical level? Like there's something against that one. That, that one I don't think is on a metaphysical level, really. I, th I really do think it's just my own reaction to it. There's just something about a female smoking that I do. I, I think I, I, I find women 
to should be clean. There's something about them that that, that I, I find more like the same thing with tattoos. Well, tattoos on women, I don't like. If it's a guy has a tattoo, I actually think it looks masculine. It's fine. It, it is whatever. But a female wearing tattoo is like you're you're encompassing almost a masculine trait onto you. Yeah. So let me try to I, to say what I the reasoning would be. Um, for you to feel that way. So you have spoken on our show about the way in which men are disposable in a way that women aren't. Mm. Um, and I think it ex- upsets you to see women, because that's what a, smoking a cigarette is like a little sacrament to the fact that you'll die. And when you watch women partaking of the, sac- the death sacrament of smoking a cigarette or whatever we want to call it, um, it upsets you because they're treating themselves as it's almost like you're more upset that, at the fact that women will die than men are, will 100 <laughs> percent a little freudian maybe no i think it I think, I think jeremy and i like early on we used to talk about how the fact that i really operate well in like a union dream analysis psychoanalytic i think that's when my my weird borderline female intuition kind of shines is when I'm able to talk about like, oh, if you had a dream, tell me about your dream and that, or like, if you're doing a thing, I can like psychoanalyze you really well, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think you, you probably, I think that that is probably a really good articulation of what, of my reaction to it. Now, whether I think that's correct or not, I don't know. Like I would have to think about it more, not in terms of your analysis, but whether my, I should feel that way. I really don't know. But I do know that I, I get a very, very intense reaction when I do see women smoking. And, um, and, and a large part of it, too, is just because, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, I, I, it, it seems like they're disrespecting themselves. And, and, and I think women should respect themselves as female. It's the same reason why I get upset if I see, like, a female CEO. It's like, no, you're, why are you partaking in this world of shit, right? That's what I do. I said, no, you have to produce a child, do do something that's actually meaningful. What you're working at a fucking widget factory and you're the CEO and you're proud. It's like, get the fuck out of here. This this is is not a place for you. And and I feel the same way with smoke. It's like, get out of here. Why why are you doing this this to yourself? You know, show show that dignity, that pride of of the female who, you know, who bears children, who educates them, who could feed her from the fucking body. I mean, that, that's something so phenomenal that I was like, that's, that's what you should be focusing on. And, and I think when you, when you see a woman smoking cigarette, it, it's upsetting to me in the same way, like I said, that CEO, female CEOs, female cops, female soldiers, like, what are you doing? Why, why the hell do you want to go to war? You're a woman. Cook me what about... Have you guys ever seen the photo of like the black and white photo of the nuns smoking? Like, is that any better since they're not like biological mothers? That actually bothers me less. That is yeah, true. Yeah, because yeah, they're they, like their whole vocation is like preparing for death. So you may as well mm-hmm. smoke a few cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, th- th- it bothers me much less. I mean, I, I still prefer not to see that. But yeah, you're right. Like I, I hold them more in the standard of men once they enter that kind of life because it's, you're entering a spiritual life and within a spiritual life yeah. you have the similarities that, that they do with the dudes but the whole like moral condemnation against smoking though i think speaks to this puritanical worldview that deny like the point of departure with morality is never something ontological because if it were then cigarette smoking like has much more value than sodomy because it speaks like wild said it in dorian gray that like the cigarette is the perfect pleasure because it never lasts long enough. Like it's a, a reminder of this ultimate truth. But of course, that's not how we look at morality in a puritanical culture. You know? But the, the last thing I wanted to talk about was our dear friend, Milo. Um, what can we say about Milo? There's a lot that can be um... I can't imagine that someone as spectacularly and flamboyantly correct will exist for a very long time. (laughs) And um, I really, I do think Jeremy feels more strongly and can articulate his feelings better about Milo. Um, But 
I, I don't know if it was like he's the possibly for a while the last cultural gasp of the correct worldview in contemporary context. Yeah, I mean, I, as a pop culture icon, I've actually always liked Milo. And so just to, just to give a little political background on, on myself, I was you know, raised with, with both parents from Peru and how most Latinos that, that immigrate to the, to the country are, is that they never actually partake in the liberal nonsense, but they all vote Democrat. And, and it's kind of like the, 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 that is the Latino mode of view. So they think that Republicans, People on, people on the right are all evil. They hate poor people, they hate um, black people, they hate Latinos and whatever. And, and so that's kind of where I was raised. And so a lot of my, um, my change of mind politically uh, was, was around um, 20, it started with the second Obama victories around 2012. I had a lot of discussions with my old business partner and um, it, it was kind of interesting. It was, it was enlightening for me to understand the conservative worldview a little more. And then I um, and then I just began to read more. You know, I, I encountered what's his name? Um, damn, what's it, that that black guy from the '60s and '70s? He's still alive now. Uh, he's an economist. Works at Harvard. Mm, I think I know who you're talking about. Forget yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, Thomas Sowell. Yes, yeah, Thomas Sowell. I encountered him. I watched some of his videos and I, I read some of his um, research papers, and I was like, wow, this is actually really, really good. And, that, and, and so it was in that time where I started to um, politically, at least, see the flaws with, um, with the Democrats. Like, I, I always disagreed with them socially, um, but politically, I, you know, economically and stuff, I really did. And I was like, yeah, it's probably good to have these social welfare states and blah, 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 everything that, that you normally hear that they present. And, and I still had this, vis did this very intense negativity towards the, towards the right. I, you know, even now it's kind of hard for me. If, if it were not for Trump, um, I still many ways dislike most Republicans. If I see them in Congress, if, if I see any of them speak, I'm like, oh, it, it grosses me out. It's, it's, it, I know it's an emotional reaction. There's no, there's no intellectual reaction. There's just emotional. I hear them, they have that weird country white guy accent. I'm like, oh, and I, I prefer not to be associated with people like that. And so, um, <laughs> But uh, Trump, Trump, for many reasons, I love. And so Milo was one of the first, I think, conservative people that I actually really liked. And so I, I began to listen to him quite a bit. Um, he made that book. What, what that book was it called? Um, dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah, dangerous. Yeah, and it's a, uh, yeah. And so I, I was fascinated with him for a long time, and that he was a Catholic and had very similar philosophical views that I've had for the longest time. And I was like, wow, he actually understands it. And I thought he was a really good voice for that, for, for, for the general population of these deep philosophical concepts of sexuality, which I think is the biggest deterrence of people um, trying to enter the church. And I thought, yeah, this is a good thing that, that someone like him is out on the scene. And so um, the fact that he, he is so flamboyant, I think he had to make a show of himself you know, exiting the sodomist world, which is, which is fine. I, I, I actually, that doesn't bother me much. I think it bothers some people, but for me, it's like, no, it's, it's, it is part of his personality. He needs to be this way. It's just the way that he, he operates. Um, but it is good for him to, I think, begin to try to live a more chaste life. And he's honest about it. He, he talked about how there were times that he, within the past year, I think that he faltered. And so it's, um, I think is important, and I think he's a pretty significant figure that uh, hopefully can help with a lot of other discerning people who have similar attributes or qualities. Yeah, you guys said something in one of your episodes about how like it was poor judgment of him to not build up a body of work first before going out there and being so outrageous. Because like, I mean, the guy is extremely intelligent. But now that he's canceled, it's like there's nothing really to keep his legacy going. Well, he operated. It was like he was like he was desperate to be canceled, and he was just looking for the. He wanted he wanted to martyr himself. But it was kind of. I feel like it was just poor judgment because, like, he says such intelligent things, but the fact that he went with this like very pro-Trump, pro-Republican thing, I was like, well, that wasn't necessary, because like. More well, I also just think he's pro-Trump. I don't think that that was necessarily. Yeah, but like effective. that's not. 
number one it's like if you're prudent if you're smart like and you want and you want people to listen to like you're not going to go out there and be like and pro-trump and pro-quo it's like no well it also seems just kind of vapid to like uh, fasten your public persona to another political figure you just become like a pundit for that you just become like yeah. a pr rep for a yes a president or something and they're um, automatically going to write you off and not and then they're well they're watching you they'll watch yeah. you and they'll find the one thing that they can justifiably cancel you for and they did and i still think that he's correct he was correct for the thing you got canceled for the pedophile thing whatever it wasn't even pedophile thing like the the, the age gap. yeah yeah the, the the age gap comment thing like that's a, that's totally fine but um but I, but again, maybe, maybe that's what I like about him. And, and what I've noticed is that more, uh, more sodomites actually find him irritating than uh, the non-sodomites. Um, but, but I think part of his showmanship is what I actually do appreciate, appreciate about him because he wasn't just like a talking head. He, he was somebody that, that, that I think made fun of the culture in a very good way that made me laugh and um, that need to be made fun of. I, th- I think without someone like him, you wouldn't have, you know, I, I think like Shapiro was famous because of, of Milo and, and Shapiro definitely um, did a much better job as most Jews do with, with the entire uh, process of making a good business out of it and making a body of work and everything. But I think without, without the antics of the showmanship. Yeah, uh, Milo and Gavin were the two possible for everybody else and yeah, they, yeah. they died by the wayside yeah yeah pretty much yeah and um yeah and so i do think it's it that the entire the milo fiasco was important i think for for a lot of their careers but um and i i think you're right he's never going to have a, a huge following but even with a small following that he does have i do think that um he probably is an important voice at least for them he's not going to reach the kind of audience that uh, that the others will but at least for them, I think it's it's good to have somebody like him on the in the market just to yeah just to show his 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 vices as well as as hopefully his growing virtues. So is it safe to say the Oscar Wilde of our times was that too generous? Probably too generous. Yeah, probably the closest we're gonna get. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Um, do you guys want to plug anything before we go? Um, my Twitter handle is at, at based sodomite on Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I might say the most genius handle of all time, but um, yeah, we just contragentile, C O N T R A, Gentiles on Gentiles. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to stuff. Um, we aren't doing a whole lot of like peripheral work. We're not doing a whole lot of merch or anything yet. Um, we've been talking about it. We're going to keep that under wraps for now because I think it's going to be cool. But um, yeah, I mean, we record every week. We're around. There's there's how many, how many, what? Once we put the episode out, we recorded yesterday. There will be like 110 hours of us talking online that people can listen to if they want. <laughs> you might learn something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's the that's the plug. Yeah, he, he's a lot better at plugging than I am. So yeah, I would just say definitely listen or watch um Contra Gentilis and yeah, it should be fun. Thank you guys for joining Cracks and Pomo. Uh, this was fun. <laughs> awesome, it. thanks. All right. I, I hope everyone has been sufficiently scandalized. Mm-hmm.